You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them blue. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Rickard. I'm bright, beautiful, and it's sunny again day. Sunny again and uh, beautiful, crisp fall weather here in the Sacramento Valley uh, with going up to a high. Oh, got to back up. We're recording this on October 11th, Wednesday, 2023, for broadcast on October 12th, 2023. And the National Weather Service tells us that today, the 11th, we're going to be at a high of 72 degrees. You know what the high was on Saturday? It was 95, Don. <laughs> you know, they call this fall. Yeah. And October is the time that the temperature falls off a cliff as well. <laughs> it's like pretty dramatic yes it was 95 on saturday very still hardly any air movement i'm, I'm very glad to say there were no fires around the region so it was just dusty more than anything and then uh, the breeze picked up and we're getting a lot of delta influence and we're going to be 72 degrees today average high on october 11th would be 81. so we were 12 or 13 degrees above average, and then we'll be nine degrees below average. That's a pretty rapid change. And by the end of the month, our average high will be, as Lois alludes, 72. It's a pretty rapid drop off October, November. October is usually a very summer feeling here. First thing I noticed when I moved here from a coastal climate, where of course it was balmy all the time, was that seemed like summer and dry and warm just went on and on and on into about the second or third week of October. And our typical pattern, most of us have been talking about it in the, in the nursery, is um, your first rain is late in the month. You know, it doesn't even yeah. feel like fall until late October. Well, we've had an unusual year, to put it mildly. And September was very cool. And then we had a real warm spell for a few days there just less than a week ago. And now it is looking like this week is going to be very fall-like here in the Sacramento Valley. High on Thursday, 78 degrees. Thursday night, this is an important one, 47 degrees. So dropping down below those critical low 50s that your summer vegetables prefer, dropping down to 47 degrees. Thursday night and partly cloudy. Friday, partly sunny. We've got some clouds coming in, a storm going to brush by us. 76 degrees. Friday night, 51 and mostly cloudy. Saturday, partly sunny, 74 degrees. You could not ask for better planting weather than that. Mostly cloudy Saturday night, 53 degrees. Mostly sunny Sunday, 79 degrees. Sunday night, 54. And here we go, a slight chance of showers on Monday. Mostly sunny, but a slight chance of showers with a high near 78. Chance of showers Monday night, mostly cloudy with a low around 58. And Tuesday, a slight chance of showers, mostly sunny with a high near 76. So we got a, a storm coming towards us, but once again, just as with the previous one, mostly going elsewhere, we'll see the edges of it and much cooler conditions than we've had in the last few weeks and cooler than average conditions for the next several days. People keep asking, can I plant this? Can I plant that? And the answer is, there are many, many things you can still plant in your vegetable garden. There are some things for which it is too late. And it's probably important to start with those, even though that's sort of a negative start to the conversation. The big-headed broccolis, Romanesco, the cauliflowers that form a big head, 
cabbage. Most of those you probably should have gotten in four to six weeks ago or even further in the case of things like Brussels sprouts because they should be growing and underway and developing a nice big canopy of leaves to support that kind of a large head. But there are two exceptions to that. One is the early versions of each of those things you can find at garden centers instead of 70 or 80 day broccolis they're 50 day broccolis they don't make six inch heads they make four inch heads but they're still broccoli and there's likewise early forming heads of cauliflower including some of the really cool orange and purple cauliflowers those are relatively small heads that form up quickly so those can still go in and more importantly the sprouting broccolis and their cousin the broccoli rob those are things you can plant all the way into november and even again in in January, February, because you're going for side shoots on those. You may get a central head, but a lot of side shoots are what you're typically after. And things like broccoli rob, which is not actually a broccoli, but is sort of a cousin, you're using the whole plant. So it really doesn't matter if it's going to form up a whole big head. And you can still plant kale and lettuce and Swiss chard and all the leafy greens can go in with no problem right on through October and well into November. And you can even plant them in freezing weather in December. They just won't do much right away when you first plant them. Uh, you can start doing um, green onions for scallions. You can do garlic now. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And uh, you should start getting ready now for the big onslaught of onion seedlings that will be coming into garden centers in the first week in November. If your soil's ready and you've got your, you know, you've amended it, if you're going to do that, if you've got all the weeds cleared out, you're ready to go, you'll be in better shape to run down as soon as those onions come in, pick up your onions, elbow your way past the old guys who are rummaging through the boxes of onions and grab yours and get them planted as quickly as you can to get off to a great start. Plenty of stuff you can still plant in the vegetable garden right on into November, December, and lots of flowers you can plant now. And this is something I feel we perhaps don't talk about enough on this show. The snapdragons, calendulas, stock, Sweet alyssum, sweet peas go in now. Um, there's lots of uh, perennials that we plant now for bloom next year. So it's actually a really great time for flower gardeners to plant things for fall bloom, for winter bloom, and for next season's bloom. Three different categories right there of plants that we can put in in October and into November. And plants that are perennial. Well, no, that's not the right word. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Shrubs, bushes, those things that are going to be flowering every year for you. It's a oh, good yeah. time plant those too. Oh, big time for landscaping. This is, uh, we've talked with more people about trees and low water shrubs and things like that in the last few days than we had in the previous several weeks because the weather changes and finally they, they get going on it. That's a big project and a big topic. I had to a conversation with a woman yesterday. I just took out my lawn. I didn't ask how. And I want to put in a whole bunch of native and drought tolerant plants. I mean, we love those conversations. There's lots and lots and lots to choose from. More to the point, this is a great time to do it. Get the area ready, soak it down real thoroughly. That's really important because the soil, if you haven't watered it, is rock hard. And then do some planting and planting. Then that's what garden centers are for. That's what landscape designers are for to help you choose the plants for that. That's really a whole separate topic, which we should just come back to at another time. Because first, we've got to tell you that KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, head on over to kdrt.org, kdrt.org, and click on the support button. And while you're there, you will find the schedule guide and list of all the programs. And you can read about the many, many programs that are produced locally here on KDRT. And one that I'll just tell you about right now is Ion Sports. We cover everything at KDRT. It's a talk radio show focused on various professional and amateur sports with a concentration 
on local athletics. Host Chuck and Cody have been involved with sports nationally and locally for more than 10 years. They want to bring their opinions and discussion points to the public through conversation, outside interviews, investigations. The show will not be politically driven in any way, locally or nationally. The conversation will be around the social environment, business side, strategy, and psychology of sports. Our goal is to create a lighthearted, conversational environment to talk sports with the best of them. That's Ion Sports, which is live Fridays, 4 to 5 p.m. For the rebroadcast times for all the programming at KDRT, just click on the schedule guide. So, Don, this is October, you know, and that means that I have a new calendar to discuss with you. Mm -hmm. For the listeners who are new to the show, Don every month does a calendar. It has pictures of flowers and fruit and whatever that he has taken during that month, and it has suggestions for opportunities for gardeners. So I want to do a few of those suggestions. One, which is a little out of date, it says weather notes, hot, dusty, and windy, wash plants foliage early in the day to remove (laughs) dust and insects. Well, yeah, but it's not that quite that hot and dusty this year, Don. Now this year, although it was, you know, five days ago, uh, we're still getting concerns about spider mites and thrips, and of course, white flies. And all those are late summer phenomena. And in particular, the spider mites like a dusty leaf surface. As, as we're speaking and doing the recording this show, I am hearing in my background, the sound of walnuts being shaken from the trees in the orchard across the street from me. Okay, and I know the next step in that process is they go through these great big broom sweeping things that sweep them into piles and enormous clouds of dust come up from that. Then they go along with these giant vacuum things that vacuum up the nuts and even bigger clouds of dust go up from that. And if there's even the slightest breeze of fine particles of dust spread far and wide across my garden, across other orchards, all the way into the city of Davis and onto your gardens as well, that dust can travel quite a ways. And when dusty leaves sit there for a while spider mites can get a better grip on the leaf is the way i like to describe it they can make their webs more easily they can build their little colonies more rapidly and they like the higher temperatures that we have typically at the end of summer so two aspects of this one thing you can really do that really helps is wash things off it really makes a difference now the white flies may seem like they've built up to impossible numbers Well, you can knock them down dramatically just by vigorously rinsing them. And the spider mites, you'll make a substantial difference by rinsing them off. And to some degree, you will manage thrips pretty well that way too, because they seem to just be on the leaf when you're blasting all these other things off and you can take a lot of them off directly. And I can assure you that a fire hose strength blast of water will kill a thrips if you happen to spray it with it. So generally those three late summer pests, as well as any aphids that might be present, are very readily managed. But I do have to repeat, because I have to go over this every day. It's not just like go out once and rinse them off or or fling some water at them. You know, when we first tell a staff person, we rinse the plants off, we'll look out and they're invariably, they have the soft rain nozzle on the hose and they're showering the plants gently. So that's fine. That's how we water the plants. This is not how we get rid of bugs. We take that soft rain nozzle off because we want hard rain. And we set the little valve thing at a sort of a blast level and we control the throttle. You don't go up to a little six pack of seedling broccoli and hit it at full strength. You'll flatten them. But you can do it full strength on your rose bushes with no problem or your citrus plants or your nearby mint or verbenas or and most of the nursery yard. We go through very vigorously rinsing. And we don't just do it once. 
we're having a white fly problem in particular we do it in the morning when we first arrive it makes the nursery look better anyway and it's great for the plants and we do it again mid to late afternoon or even again at the end of the day before we leave on what we call the hot spots got a hot spot developing over in the abutilon we notice some white flies fluttering up there hit them again with water two to three times in a single day and again the next day and again the next day three days in a row will very typically in our nursery give extremely high level of control of white flies and we don't even see spider mites as a consequence if we that we then continue to monitor and monitoring in the case of white flies is easy walk by a plant shake it a little bit adults fly up time to wash them off again mites you got to look more closely but you can typically see the damage and thrips are very similar to mites it's hard to spot the the pest itself but the damage is obvious and so rinsing for those is very helpful as well so hot dry dusty means keep rinsing Cool makes a big difference. Rainy makes a big difference. Slows down the spider mites in particular and slows down the white flies. And the good news is that 48 or 49 degree night that I mentioned at the start of the program, that'll slow them way down. Temperatures under 50 will definitely make a big difference on the seemingly impossible populations of white flies and other insects in your garden because almost all of them are very temperature dependent and the reproduction rate drops very, very rapidly below 50 degrees, even slows down a lot below 55 degrees. So all is not lost. Nature will help take care of this. You can give it a nudge with a vigorous rinse. One of the things that people need to remember, and most gardeners are really good about this, is as the season progresses, things slow down. Yeah, change. The yep. Trees' leaves are not producing so much, you know, nutrition, and so they they turn color and they absize and they fall off because the, the tree doesn't need them or want them anymore. Uh, the the insects, I don't think they're gonna be killing strong anymore. Well, no, they're so not. They're hard. not warm. They're not the, warm blooded. They're affected by yeah, the temperature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the plants that we love in our gardens are getting ready for winter. Mm-hmm. How can you say that? They're, they're, the tops are dying down on some on the, the perennials. Um, the the bushes may be losing their leaves or not. They may be evergreen leaves, but you know, things are changing. Well, this is where knowing the plants is obviously very helpful. One of my staff walked in with a gallon can of an aster that had just finished its bloom. Uh, asters are a really cool daisy family member that bloom sort of late summer into the fall, so bridging the gap between the midsummer things and the things like chrysanthemum. So asters are really useful for drawing beneficials. They're great garden plants. We have native ones and non-native ones, and they're all, as far as I can tell, equally attractive to pollinators. Um, he wanted to know what to do. And I said, well, this is a really good example. That's a classic herbaceous perennial. It's done for this season. Notice all the leaves at the ground level in that pot. Those are all fine. Those are going to be there through the winter coming up to bloom next year. So really, it's very simple how you prune an aster once it's done blooming. He was imagining, you know, pinching out the individual blossoms that had finished to try and keep them going. And I've had staff do that with chrysanthemums, you know, carefully nipping out the one this and that and that. It's extremely tedious. If, if you like that, if you find it therapeutic, fine. But you can just wait for the whole thing to finish blooming and cut it to the ground. But you need to know your perennials. Herbaceous perennials in general is a term we use for soft perennials, not, not shrubs. So these are true perennials. They're all done, chrysanthemums, penstemon, a lot of them, uh, many of the, some of the salvias, but not all of them. So it's important to know, but you can kind of tell by looking at the plant, if it's soft, it's herbaceous. If it's woody, it's actually a shrub. The soft ones, typically done blooming, 
give them a haircut all the way down to a couple inches above the ground. Shasta daisies are a classic example. Asters are a classic example. There's no particular horticultural skill needed for the pruning part. You just need to know which plant, which plant is which and which you can do it to, but it's not that hard to tell because it's all done, bloomed out. All that stuff looks like flower stems and down at the ground, there's new stuff coming up. That's an herbaceous perennial. Go ahead and give it a haircut. I've told this story before, but you have to go way back in the archives to find it. So I'm okay to tell it again. When my spouse was eight months <laughs> pregnant <laughs> with our first child, child was born in November. So this is October that she was eight months pregnant with a child and was getting the whole place ready. You know, they do that, I can tell you. And I came home and the entire perennial border had been mowed with a mower because it was really hard to bend down and cut the plants when you're eight months pregnant. So she just took care of the problem by taking our big mower, setting it as high as it would go and mowing the whole thing. <laughs> I looked at it and said, well, that took care of that. We'll see how that does. Well, they came back beautifully. I mean, for anything that was an herbaceous perennial, uh, it was a, a very effective way to clean them up and chop up all the debris too and just leave it there as mulch. So I'm not recommending <laughs> mowing your perennial border unless you're eight months pregnant, in which case it's probably a very therapeutic thing to do. <laughs> Let's move on to the other chores. <laughs> don't so don't when, hit your shrubs with the mower. That's the other important part. Yeah. No, no so lavender when, with the mower unless you're trying to get rid of it. <laughs> Don frequently says, cut them to the ground. But I want to be clear. Almost, almost to the ground. You, you aren't going to the, the soil level and sneaking in there and cutting them off so that the root <laughs> is separated from that. No, no. It means cut the top that is last year this year's blossoms which are now done cut that off but leave the green growing part that's the rosette at the bottom yeah and if you've got any questions about whether a plant is suitable for that category take a picture send it to us or send us your questions but for the most part these herbaceous perennials is a great way to go and they're done blooming and back to a point you were making four to six weeks is a very common pest threshold when they show up, reach their peak, and then go back down again. When I say that to people, you know, imagine the aphids that come in the spring, which we'll talk about in the spring. They show up, they increase like crazy. You're going, oh my God, the whole yard is going to be covered with aphids. And you're monitoring, which is a really important part of integrated pest management. You're keeping track of those populations. If you do nothing, they'll hit a certain point. They'll be all over everything on that one plant, and then they'll start to disappear, and they will, they'll run their course, either because temperatures have gotten too high or too low for their reproductive optimum, or beneficial insects have followed along at a somewhat slower pace of population increase, but are catching up and tend to have a wider range of reproductive optima. So you can get something like the leatherwing beetle coming in and eating the aphids. And at first their aphids are reproducing faster than the leatherwing beetles can eat them. But then they cross that magic threshold of beneficials increasing faster than aphids are and beginning to get control of the population. It's about four to six weeks. Uh, snails and slugs, big problem in the spring for about four to six weeks. Then we get drier than is optimum for them. Earwigs, almost always late April through May, five to six weeks, and then they're done doing damage in your garden. The real pest problems, honestly, are the ones that aren't seasonal, the ones that just continue like squirrels and things like that, you know, which we, which have no particular season except the seasonality of their nesting patterns. Uh, but in general, that four to six week threshold is important for a bunch of reasons. And one of them is it's a good way to plan your planting. Early fall is an important time to plant for the winter. The first four to six weeks of fall is the most crucial planting time for winter vegetables and flowers. And to be aware that most pests will follow a cycle that's manageable. I had a customer bring in a bag full of ash white fly. Uh, who were on some plants of hers. I hadn't seen ash whitefly in quite a while because we have a biological control program that has very effectively controlled them all over the Sacramento Valley. But you get a little localized outbreak. She goes, what do I do? And I said, well, it's October 10th. 
and the nights are getting colder, you don't have to do anything. This problem is going to solve itself. Will they come back next year? Yes, they probably will come back next year. But generally, this, this particular pest is readily controlled naturally in the landscape. So what you do now is monitor. Don't worry about it. Rinse the plants off if you want to. I mean, rinsing them off just to knock down the localized population you're dealing with can be very helpful. But you don't really need to worry about it because we're at the end of that four to six week period that's crucial for that pest. And it's just going to start running down on its own course. Things do... Those of you who are gardening in mild climates, such as I grew up in, where it's always 60 to 70 degrees, your pest problems tend to be more year round. So that's one downside of living in what appears to be like a natural greenhouse like coastal San Diego. Gardening is easier there, but pests are less seasonal, perhaps more year round. One of the other things on the October calendar here is annuals. And the note says, plant now. Pansies, violas, snapdragons, calendula, stocks, sweet alyssum, and more. It's yep. also a good time to plant wildflower seeds. So we'll come back to this next week and talk about more of the things on here. But I want to ask Don about this horrible, horrible picture that he sent me. I, You know... <laughs> The downside of being of working with Don is he sends you the most gross, disgusting things. Uh -huh. This is a picture of an article, and it says, those funny grubs you find as you're digging in your garden. And the uh, yes. title of the thing is, do you have milky spore disease? What the heck, Don? Okay, so many people gardening in this area are digging up their beds to start planting fall and winter things. They've been doing this for four or five weeks, and they'll get down to one end of the bed or the other, and up in one shovel full will come a whole bunch of white, pudgy grubs. A little, well, they look, I mean, if, if you could get this idea out of your head that this is awful, they look like something you could eat. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a bird or a possum or a skunk, that's exactly what you think when you see these. These are the grubs of beetles. And uh, I'll never forget the one time we were trying to identify some at the nursery, probably 25, 30 years ago. We're pouring over it and a guy walks in, he goes, you looking at those? I said, yeah. Well, I'm an entomologist. We can't tell them apart. So I don't think you're likely <laughs> to. I love our customer base. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. These white grubs uh, all look pretty much the same for quite a range of beetles. So someone walked into my store and we might have already gone over this, but he said, I'm here for milky spore disease. And my staff person completely blank look, thinking he has a problem with some disease called milky spore. Maybe he wants a fungicide or something uh, because we don't sell milky spore disease. And I don't usually let these conversations go too far without jumping in. I said, well, we don't sell that because it's specific for Japanese beetles. And we don't have Japanese beetles here. And he wanted to argue with me. He said, yeah, yeah, we do. I saw some. I said, well, if you do, you'll be on the evening news because we have quarantines for Japanese beetles in California. They occasionally show up, but they're not common. They, uh, they, you're, I'm guessing, just guessing here, that you found a larva in your soil. Yeah, yeah, these white grubs. And I went online. That's always a good start. I went online and they look just like this. I said, yeah, all beetle larvae basically look just like that. Well, many beetle larvae look just like that. If you're listening to us, in let's see what are the states where they're present anywhere back east east of the mississippi there Wisconsin, are no minnesota iowa missouri nebraska kansas arkansas and oklahoma there you go thank you and they're they're um a real pain to gardeners i'm told it's really awful to try and deal with them because they have a wide host range the adults feed on foliage and flowers all kinds of things in your garden and they're not specific they'll go on all sort well they're specific but it's a very wide list of things to which they're specific so they're Every garden center will have milky spore disease, which is sort of like Bacillus thuringiensis that we use for caterpillars that used to be considered a bacillus. Actually, its official name is Penibacillus papillae, and it's a soil dwelling 
bacterium that you spread on the soil where the grubs are present and it gradually kills the population. I'm told it works very well, but you have to be patient. And so you have to apply it, I don't know, a couple of years in a row. If you're listening back there, your garden centers and your extension folks and your master gardeners can tell you all about it. It doesn't do anything for anything we have here. We don't have Japanese beetles as an established population in California. What you have is the larva of chafer beetles, or I think I sent you the thing that lists all the different possibilities there. Uh, they're shiny beetles, the scarabids, the June beetles, um, things like that. We don't actually have rose chafer, but there's a different chafer. These do feed a little bit on plant flower petals and leaves, but that's about it. And they don't do enough damage for it to be worth worrying about. So the next question, of course, we always get, well, why are there so many of them in my vegetable garden? The adult beetle went there to oviposit for some reason. Perhaps there Maybe was... because it was light and fluffy soil. Well, it could be, or temperature is more likely. It's very common that the ovipositing ones are attracted to warmer areas. So down at the composty end of your vegetable garden where he piled up a bunch of stuff and some of it was rotting, it's quite possible. Now, my further conversation with him was, oh, we had them all over the place in, in LA. I said, well, again, hate to contradict you, but you did not have Japanese beetles all over the place in Los Angeles. I would know about it if you did, because we, we always get notified about the quarantines when these things happen. No, no, there's these big shiny green beetles. Oh, those are different. Those are cool, actually. Those are fig eater beetles. Fig eater beetles are about inch and a half, two inches long, shiny green, and really, really interesting. Your kid finds one of those, they'll be fascinated by it. Because are they eating my figs? I said, well, maybe. How many figs does your tree produce? Can you spare but they eat rotten can, figs? Can you spare one percent of the rotting figs on the ground <laughs> to a fig eater beetle? That's a native insect that followed figs up into the north. Uh, figs are not native, but the name comes from from the fact that it attacks them. Figs are planted widely in the Central Valley and in Northern California many years ago as a crop. And of course, home gardeners grow them as well. And so we have fig eater beetles here as well. And they're not all over LA, but he probably had them in his garden. Their larva is bigger. But milky spore disease won't work on them either. And I frankly wouldn't worry about them. So this is the simple bottom line. If you're listening to us in California and you haven't heard that you have a Japanese beetle infestation in your county, you would know probably the local news would cover it. Don't worry about these larvae. Don't worry about the grubs you find. Yes, you'll find an amazing number of them sometimes in one little corner of your garden. The simplest thing to do when you do that, I mean, you can kill them yourself if you want, if you feel like it. Simplest thing though is just take them, throw them on the ground over near the bushes. I guarantee in the morning he'll be gone. They are, they are, a, they are a buffet to jays, mockingbirds, uh, possums, skunks, which are fine to have in your garden for the record. All kinds of things will come along and happily feed on the grubs, which can't get away. So they'll just be, you'll just be handing them off to some predator. And will they have perhaps been doing a little feeding on roots while they're in your garden? It's unlikely. It's a different grub that feeds on the roots of your turf species. Sometimes people would treat for that. For the most part, modern turf that are made of fescue blends don't need to be treated. You hardly even see the little bit of damage they do. Nothing to worry about. But yes, they do. If you go online or post a picture anywhere in any Facebook group, someone will tell you they're Japanese beetles. Happy to tell you we don't have them in California, not an established basis. And so the beetles you're dealing with, again, with that four to six week cycle, the adult that comes out that emerges from the pupa, which is the next thing you'll be finding, the, the adult that comes out of the pupa in the spring emerges and flies off and does damage for about two weeks. Yep. Eats a few flower petals on your roses and eats a few leaves on some that are pushing out on trees nearby. And that's it. And you wouldn't even be able to find them doing it. Typically, they've moved on by the time you see the damage. No need to spray. Sign of a healthy garden. Don't worry about it unless you're listening east of the Mississippi, in which case, talk to your local extension personnel. Okay. So 
what is the difference between soft-necked and hard-necked garlics? And why well, do some gardeners want one or the other? Uh, I had an inverted conversation about this with someone who walked in and said, I'd heard that we shouldn't grow hard neck garlic here. We should grow soft neck garlic here. And the should part is the problem there. Soft neck garlic is your typical California garlic. We sell California early white, which is probably what you're buying in the grocery store. It's a very, very high yield garlic. And it does not require, let's jump into some jargon here, vernalization to form bulbs. What? Vernal, vernal, vernal means spring. Yep. Vernalization means what? Spring, springization. It does, doesn't require the process of going into the winter and coming out. So if you happen to plant soft neck garlic in the spring, it'll still form just fine. If you plant hard neck garlic in the spring, which does require vernalization to form bulbs, it won't form bulbs properly. So soft neck is what we grow. The, the question she had was, I'd heard we shouldn't grow hard neck garlic here. No, it's the other way around. Up in very cold climates, like, I don't know, Michigan, places like that. Have um, to grow hard neck. Right. It's more cold hardy. I actually don't know if they can grow a hard neck garlic in Michigan. So anybody of you that's listening, you know, follow your local advice. But they can't grow the soft neck garlic in very cold climates because it's subject to freeze injury and then rot. So that's the first thing right there. Uh, we can grow hard neck garlics here. It's just that we can also grow soft neck garlics, which they can't. And soft neck garlics are more productive. That's why people like them. Soft neck garlic, like California early white, the one most of us sell in large numbers, You'll get, you'll plant a clove, you know, you buy a head of garlic, which is 10 or 12 cloves. You break those up, you plant each clove and each one produces a 10 to 12 clove head for you by early summer. In the case of hardneck, you typically get four to eight cloves per head, you know, so less yield. The white uh, soft neck types store better, so they say anyway. Now, storage conditions are gonna vary depending on moisture and things like that, but typically you can store a soft neck garlic for eight to nine months with no problem. Hard neck garlic is usually said to last for four to five months. So you'd be harvesting it in late spring, early summer, and you'd be able to store it through the summer and into the fall, but probably not all the way through till the next planting season, which you could do with the other one. Here's a curiosity, and every time I read this, someone asks me what it means. Hard neck garlic forms a flower scape. Flower scape, S-C-A-P-E, scape? Scape, yes, which is the, you know, we often talk about a cluster of flowers as an inflorescence, a group right. of flowers, but this is the whole structure, the whole stem and everything. So it's like oh. the inflorescence on top of the stem. Uh, and it's uh, referred to as a scape. And I didn't know this until a few years ago. That part is considered a delicacy. Some people want it. They want the flower escape. They want to cook with it because it has, it does have a delicate shallots like flavor, sort of like a cross between shallots and garlic, rather tender. And that doesn't affect the yield or storage. So unlike an onion, which flowers, well, we've got a problem that doesn't store well, this does not affect that. And so people do kind of like having that part of the plant to cook. So if you want your flower escape, plant a hard neck garlic. And here's one of the bigger differences people do comment on is that the hard neck ones are a little drier is more separated from the the skin and so they're real easy to peel whereas the soft neck ones are a little harder to peel i don't know if you've ever had that experience where it's difficult to get that papery stuff off that's likely a soft neck garlic but if you really like strong flavored garlic this is the main reason people plant hard neck there are variable flavors in the i don't know several hundred varieties of garlic that are out there but the hottest and the spiciest and the strongest and most garlicky ones happen to be hard neck types the rocambole types which are very pungent flavor uh, if you want that you're going to be growing a hard neck garlic by far more soft neck garlic sold at garden centers because they're 
higher yield is the primary reason and they're easy you can do them fall or spring so they've become sort of the standard in the industry both for what you're buying in the grocery store and what you're planting in your home garden garlic enthusiasts though look for those rocambole or some of the other hardneck types if you want that really pungent eye-watering kind of garlic those are the kind you'd probably be looking for well, there's some milder hardneck things. There's purple stripe and then yep. porcelain. And that's a that's a milder form. Yeah, it has uh, what I found described as a musky flavor. Um, but yeah, you'll get more differences in flavor in the hardneck types. And you'll get the stronger flavored ones in the hardneck types. And you'll get greater cold hardiness. But the key thing is we can grow any of them here. We are in here in the Sacramento Valley. We can grow anything in the onion family pretty much. It's a perfect place. You realize that most of these were thought to have been um, first adopted by humans around Egypt, around the Nile, around, you know, the floodplain of a big river that would flood routinely and deposit silty soil as a hot, dry summer. Hmm. <laughs> sounds that like sounds Sac- like Davis. Yeah. Sounds like the Sacramento Valley, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And this turns out to be, and we're intermediate in terms of day length and winter temperatures. So we can grow uh, all the ones from the north, like Walla Walla onions grow just fine here and all these garlics and anything from the south, like the Vidalia uh, onions from Georgia, we can grow those here. We can grow any of them. You don't have to worry when you're looking at the catalog and thinking of ordering onions from an online supplier. Oh, do I want the short day or the long day type? Doesn't matter. We can grow them all. Don't worry about it. They all do great here. And we have the advantage that we're digging them up at a time when there's not going to be any rainfall for the next three to four months. So you can dig them, leave them in a shaded area outside, not worry about it, you know, bring them in, clean them off, hang them up in your garage. You're not damp. You're not humid. You're not, there's no moisture to worry about. We don't usually see any rainfall whatsoever between Memorial Day and Labor Day. And uh, even the month before or after that is pretty rare. So it's a great place for things that uh, you want to dry off at the end of the season and then put into storage. Great place for onions. Well, it's also a great place for a lot of critters and diseases and things. So, um, Holly, who's one of our frequent writers, uh, says, hello from Redlands, California. Hope you're both doing well. I wanted to follow up on an email I sent a while back about the chili thrips decimating my roses every summer. Mm-hmm. Basically, the damage was so bad that my roses were almost completely defoliated by fall. As you know, the main recommendations for controlling chili thrips involved rotating a few different sprays on a regular yeah. schedule. I try to avoid using pesticides, organic or not, unless I have absolutely no other option. So this summer, I decided to treat my thrips the same way I treat aphids and whiteflies. Blast them off with water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I vigorously and thoroughly sprayed my rose bushes with a high power spray nozzle once a week in the morning, making sure to spray the underside of the leaves and pay special attention to the flower buds and new growth. Well, I am happy to say that for the first time since I moved to this house, my roses are not defoliated and in fact are blooming. See the attached photo. I'm still seeing some thrip damage throughout the summer, but it's not totally, but it is totally manageable. I know my experience only represents a small sample of one and our weather (laughs) has been somewhat unusual this year, but I think it might be food for thought. I'm going to do this again next summer and monitor the results. I hope I'm onto something. Thank you for all you do and take care. Thank you. And that's great to hear because thrips are, in my opinion, just based on the concerns and comments I I get both talking with master gardeners who are dealing with the public at the the farmer's market and the people coming in to talk to me. They're an increasing problem in our area. Um, And they're frustrating because you don't typically see them. So I have to explain this pest to people and there's nothing for them to look at. The only time I can show them thrips is when they've 
cut off flowers from their roses, white roses in particular, and put them quickly into a plastic bag and brought it into me because then the thrips are still typically down at the base of the petals and I can simply take it out and open it out, you know, open out the flower and show them scurrying around down there at the base. And they're little tiny things, a sixteenth of an inch long and like a skinny rod. And they move so fast that if you just take it and bring me the, the rose without putting it in a plastic bag, they're long gone by the time the rose gets to me. The damage, however, is very recognizable because what they do on roses that we get here, which is really frustrating, is they get on the bud just as the color, just as it's cracking and showing a little bit of color, and they feed with these rasping, chewing mouth parts. And all they're doing is taking little tiny, you know, scissory bites out of it. You don't see that. What you see is it damages the edges of the petals to the point that the flower opens one improperly sometimes doesn't even open right and when it does there's a lot of brown stuff on it and so it's unattractive and again it's about a four to six week problem on roses here in the valley but thrips do go on to lots of other things with your roses you know the, the fewer white or light colored roses you have the better i have had dark red rose next to a white rose and the white rose was unsightly because of thrips and I couldn't even find them on the red rose next to it. So there's a clear light colored rose flower preference on the part of thrips. That's one thing to be aware of. Uh, but they can, the damage they do is frustrating. And yes, if you go online, you're going to find all these recommendations for rotating different pesticides. If you go to any organic farm, they'll jump in and say, use neem. And honestly, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't work on thrips. <laughs> so don't bother. Um, and I think rinsing them off is probably just as good as anything. And it's beneficial in every other respect. It rinses off aphids. It rinses off young white flies. It gets rid of spider mites if they're beginning to form. It rinses off powdery mildew. If you have a problem with downy mildew, don't do it during downy mildew infectious period but that's mostly spring and high moisture and lower temperatures getting into hotter weather drier weather there is nothing at all wrong with rinsing off your roses and i get people who say oh i always heard you shouldn't get water on the leaves for this reason or that reason don't worry about it you should get water on the leaves in this manner because you're significantly reducing your pest problems and i think one secondary benefit is that you're getting water nearby on shrubs that are around your roses and the grasses over there and that's giving moisture to the beneficial insects that you're also counting on lots of things feed on thrips in fact the reason you find earwigs in rose flowers just kind of mm -hmm. gross when it happens they've gone up there to feed on the thrips if they would unfortunately they also feed on the rose petals while they're present so that's a, a downside but they are up there feeding on thrips and so there's lots of things that like to eat them i'm guessing hummingbirds and others also probably feed on them uh, but they can be very frustrating and i do think they're an increasing problem here when we have a pest that's increasing or decreasing um, usually it's related to the pattern of agricultural crops in our area. So that may not be relevant to those of you in more metropolitan areas. But something I was noting when we were looking at the September and October notes, pests and diseases, I wrote white flies, leafhoppers, spider mites. I haven't seen anyone with a major leafhopper problem in years. Why? Because sugar beets aren't grown in the valley anymore. And they were a major host for leafhoppers. Uh, people with grapevines may encounter the particular ones that get on grapevines, but leafhoppers used to be a huge late season problem here in the valley, and they've largely gone away. And that's because of cropping patterns. And my guess is that thrips are increasing because of a shift to a particular row crop that's in our region. But as for you listening in suburban or urban settings, there might be other reasons. Rinsing off is a great management strategy, and I can't think of an insecticide rotation I'd be willing to do to try and control them. Uh, there's issues anywhere where the temperature gets above 85 during the day, which is here most of the summer growing season. Any of the sprays you look at, pretty good chance some of them are an oil base and they're going to burn the foliage. So you've 
damage your roses trying to protect your roses. It just doesn't make sense to me. Water is a safe thing to use. And as to one final myth, you know, we talk about this all the time, but it comes up whenever I talk about this. Well, should I do that, you know, during the sunlight? Isn't the sun on the water on the leaves going to burn the leaves? Look, my leaf is burnt. See, isn't that because I got water on the leaves? No. It's not burnt because you got water on the leaves. Sun does not magnify through water droplets and burn leaves. This is this is one of the most persistent garden myths out there. And I get in trouble sometimes when I correct people about it on various Facebook groups. Water on the leaves does not burn the leaves. If your leaves look burnt on your roses, pretty good chance there was an irrigation problem that it wasn't enough water on the roots at an important time. Washing the leaves off, even in the middle of the day on a hot day, does not burn the foliage. And the answer I finally fall back on when people start arguing with me about this I run a garden center, okay? We've been doing it for 40 plus years. We water the plants when the plants need water and we wash them off when we water them. And we do that without regard to what time of day it is or what the temperature is. I couldn't possibly water my garden center if I couldn't get water on the leaves during the daytime. I'd have to pay someone to come in before sunrise and water several hundred thousand, whatever it is, plants. And uh, that isn't gonna happen. And you don't see leaf injury from water sitting on the leaves in direct sunshine. I hope that's clear enough, but boy, does this one pop up more often than you'd think. Okay, what's next, Lois? Well, I'm I'm going to have a problem with this next one, Don, and that is that she sent all these pictures, and yes. I, there's way way many pictures. So, um, Mary writes, I live in West Sacramento, so zone nine B. A mm-hmm. while ago, I noticed some damage on the foliage of one of my back blackberry plants. And then more recently noticed it on my raspberry plants as well. Then today I noticed a similar but more extreme damage on one branch of my Rainier cherry tree. All of these plants are pretty close to each other, but there are other stone fruit trees close by, which apparently don't have it. All of these plants went in this winter or spring and none of the damaged plants have had any fruit yet. The berries are a floricane variety. Berry plants mostly have damage between the major leaves, veins of the leaves, but also have some fully defoliated areas at the tips of stems where new growth was occurring. Now, she keeps writing and writes more things. Do you want to do one at a time? You want to talk about the berry plants first? Wow. Um, this damage... She sent 15 pictures and they're all over the place. Yeah, there's lots of cool pictures of bugs on there. Uh, the extent of that injury on the leaves looks more like a red hump caterpillar, which really defoliates things. But there's clearly a caterpillar of some sort on here. There we go. I had a customer in Davis who also had this problem, and we were unable to identify exactly which caterpillar it was, but she found the caterpillar. So that's the cool part. As she's going around... Um, resting on the clothespin, <laughs> there it is, is a Lepidopteran larva, which is what we commonly call a caterpillar. And so that is what's doing the damage. And uh, further on, she found a, a, a praying mantis. Cool, but it's not going to eat that. I mean, praying, praying mantis, let's just take a slight digression here. They're interesting to have in your garden. They're a sign that you have a healthy garden. Most of the ones you find actually are the non-native types that people have released. There are native praying mantids as well. But they're what we call general feeders. And so they feed on bugs, sure, that fly by them. They feed on other praying mantids. They feed on beneficial insects. So they're not really 
doing a lot of good in the garden or bad. They're sort of, um, as I say, they feed on whatever. So releasing praying mantis is not something I really recommend. The presence just tells me that you have a healthy garden and they'll feed on some things that you want them to feed on and other things that you don't want them to feed on. Um, so that that's nice to see that there, but it's not going to control the caterpillar. Most of the damage that is on that is in these pictures is from some sort of lepidopteran larva, that is to say caterpillar, which are generally pretty easily controlled with BT sprays, Bacillus thuringiensis, that is the original organic biological control, kills only caterpillars and nothing else and only kills them when they feed on it. So you have to allow for some damage to continue after you spray and you do spray every oh three to five days as long as new damage is continuing. Uh, red hump caterpillar can be amazing how much damage you can get and how fast they can spread, but you can also generally find them and I don't see any present here. That's one where the whole branch of your walnut or a whole side of your red bud is just defoliated seemingly overnight. It takes them about five to seven days to do that, but they do it really fast. But you'll find them present and very commonly birds will come in and strip them off because they're right out in the open. They're visible. They're up there where you can see them and where the birds can see them. Not the best strategy evolutionarily, but they're, they make up for it with their sheer numbers and they're very rapid uh, uh, food ingestion of your crop plant. Uh, they're pretty easily controlled, although, as I say, oftentimes it's already solving itself by the time you see them. But whatever this one is, and I can't tell from the, the picture, it's obviously a caterpillar. It's obviously feeding on the foliage. So if you start to see the damage in May to June, which is probably when the first cycle of this began, perhaps as late as July, spraying with the organic BT products, Bacillus thuringiensis, sold as caterpillar killer or just BT is what some of them are sold as. Is a, it's a very safe thing that you can use. Don't spray it anywhere near your milkweed plants or anything where you're trying to get caterpillars. You don't want it where the monarch are, are going to oviposit. So don't get it on your passion flowers or your uh, Dutchman's pipe vine or your milkweed plants, but it's fine to use on your crop plants. It will kill just the these particular caterpillars, but you can't, there's no point in doing it until you see the first damage because it, they have to feed on it for it to work on them. It's not a preventative, let's put it that way. That looks like your major damage there. And as I say, one part of it where there was so much gone, you might've had one population of the red hump caterpillar that usually shows up sometime in July and does a significant amount of damage. Thing to note about that one, you think it's done and then another generation. I've had as many as five generations of red humped caterpillar on my trees on my farm. Not generally enough for me to worry about, but it is amazing how much foliage they can take off in a very short period of time. Again, BT works on them. Thing about BT is it works best on the young stage. The earlier in the life cycle of the caterpillar you get it on there, the more effective it will be. So watch for the beginnings of the damage next year and consider spraying with BT at that time. And just repeat, monitor, key integrated pest management strategy, monitor, watch for new holes, see if you can find the caterpillars. But once you see the holes and you know they're new since your last spray application, probably spray again. Question on the BT applications. Now, how, so you you don't have to spray, spray the caterpillar. It's the caterpillar eats the BT. Right. That's what says, okay. Yeah, and yeah. how long will that BT stay effective? So if I spray it on, and, and then the caterpillar doesn't eat it for an hour. Will it still work? How about an hour, for yes. a day? Uh, we think we think a day. I mean, they it, it will it still wet on there. Great, and then, and will it still drying on the leaves? But you it's probably twenty four hours roughly. Um, and any caterpillar that feeds in that time now caterpillars have to feed every twenty four hours. So if they're present, if you got it on what they're feeding on, you'll get reasonably good control quickly. But be aware that eggs can continue to hatch, and an egg that hatches two days after you sprayed with BT 
probably not going to be affected by what you did a couple of days ago. So you do need to continue spraying. Some caterpillars do us a favor. Red hump caterpillar, for example, all the eggs hatch at the same time. Pretty amazing <laughs> to watch. And they're all in one place on one leaf. So all of a sudden there's some skeletonized leaves because the little babies can only eat between the veins. They grow past that stage rather rapidly. Then they're eating whole leaflets and then pretty soon they're eating entire leaves, but they don't go very far. You'll, you'll walk out on my young walnut orchard. I would find them one whole branch defoliated and that's as far as they went. They didn't crawl anywhere else on the tree or climb off and go to the near next tree over. They radiate out from where the eggs were laid and they don't go very far. And they're all present, it's one whole generation. Others, oh, let's say your imported cabbage worm, that white butterfly that posits one egg here, one egg there on your broccoli and your cauliflower and your kale and others. That one keeps ovipositing steadily. There's, I wouldn't even call them generations. It's just an ongoing onslaught. <laughs> and uh, uh, so you've got one hatching and you think you've got control and they see holes over there. So for those, you have to keep spraying. In fact, a lot of organic gardeners who are dealing with imported cabbage worm on their coal crops will just cover the whole bed with seedling blanket in the early part of the season. They plant their broccoli and kale and all that kind of stuff. They even go on to lettuce. It's frustrating when it happens. And then they'll cover the whole bed with frost blanket fairly securely and watch as the cabbage worm butterflies come fluttering around and get confused and go somewhere else, like to the neighbor's yard. Uh, so they've got control simply by physically making a barrier so that the, the adult cannot oviposit. We have found those eggs of that particular one are pretty poorly attached. And when we rinse off seedlings in our nursery, they blast right off. So again, back to the water rinsing or just look for them on the undersides of the leaves or sometimes on the top of the leaf, very visible, rub them right off. That takes care of the problem. But there are so many of them over such a long period of time that you really have to keep after them. So some people do like to go to the BT sprays. Most people who do that have found once a week with BT during the warm part of the early fall and winter garden season takes care of most of those. Same thing with your caterpillar problem on your blackberries and others, probably two to three applications early on when you see the damage will do a significant amount of control. You can probably tolerate the rest at that point. You do want to bear in mind that there's other things that can be feeding on young seedlings or young shoots of berries or things like that, ranging from, oh, white crowned sparrows <laughs> to right now, Tree rats coming in and stripping leaves and small branches off of some trees, probably for their nest making cycles. They go into the colder months. That can be very frustrating when it happens. But typically what I'm seeing here looks like herbivorous damage from a Lepidopteran larva. In other words, caterpillars are feeding on your plants. I love the way you throw <laughs> around those big words. There you go. Hey, why use, why use a two-syllable word when you use a perfectly un, unclear four-syllable word? Either that or you can make up your own and have an eight-syllable word. <laughs> those are all valid terms that I just used. Anyway, there's a lot of interesting okay. stuff in those pictures. So, it, what I like about this is you went out and you found the pest problem, but you also found a lot of other things going on in the garden. It reminds me of a picture I took once. I was looking for aphids for a talk I was giving, and I took a picture, and I was getting ready to give the talk, and I realized in that picture of the aphids on the underside of a pittosporum tobira leaf, there was also one parasitized aphid already present that had been was in, under control by a parasitic wasp. There was an aphid eating insect crawling towards the aphid I was taking a picture of. And there was another aphid feeding insect further up in the frame of the same photo. So of the, I don't know, six or eight insects in the picture, three of them were good guys. 
already coming in to take care of the aphid problem. And I had just gone out to take pictures of aphids. So these things are going on in your yard. The, you know, the mantids are out there. They're getting ready to go climb way up high and lay their eggs. The parasitic wasps that, that parasitize aphids are present, giving good control of black aphids in many cases. And there are even things that feed on caterpillars, and most of them are larger predators. And I do think, much as the, you know, I gripe about white crowned sparrows, I don't know if they feed on small caterpillars, but lots of birds probably do. I mean, certainly small birds that come through and, and feed on some of the insects in your garden. So do they do they eat? I mean, are they good guys in any sense? Do they they're, sense? they're good guys, but <laughs> their mouth parts are not for fly catching. Ah. Now, the yellow rumped warblers, they ah. have small, thin little bills and yeah. they eat insects. They eat aphids. Oh, they love aphids. Yeah. And um, then all year round, you have in your yard black phoebes, and those are flycatchers that are resident here, and so they will fly around and catch those mosquitoes and things like that. They're probably feeding on white flies. There's a lot of white fly adult activity in the at the edges of the day, particularly as we get towards a late afternoon into the early evening. And dragonflies, I certainly that's it. Have. Yeah, dragonflies will be out there eating very heavily. So if you can draw dragonflies into your garden, and all it takes is some water. You know, some people have found they hover around bird baths. Uh, some kind of moving water is great, but some kind of water source seems to do it and places for them to rest. So that's and a twig sticking out of the water. Yeah. So they replace yeah. the land. They yeah. love it. Something they to sit on it. nearby. Yep. Okay. Well, let's go. Let's continue this thought. Nancy writes, do you have any idea what is devouring the leaves of my little persimmon tree? It was planted in 2020, and this is the first year it's bearing fruit. One friend said squirrels, but I wanted to check in with you. What do you suggest I do that whatever is eating at the leaves don't consume the rest of the leaves and hurt my well-nourished and loved tree? Thank you so much. Yeah. Two photos, the entire tree mostly is healthy, and then photos of the two eaten branches. What's interesting about the eaten branches is they didn't eat the fruit so right. the so the reason i the only reason I again isn't it well i don't know the only reason i don't think it's squirrels is that what squirrels do on persimmon trees that drives people absolutely nuts is they climb up they take one bite out of an unripe persimmon which must be just as awful for them as it would be for us and they knock it to the ground then they go try the next one and they'll do every one on the tree even though they're underripe so they have a slow learning curve shall we put it that way whereas and also if there are squirrels they're out during the daytime. I mean, not exclusively, but predominantly during the daytime. So you'd if you're at home during the day, you'd see them. That's right. You'd see them up there playing around in your yard and suddenly they run up and do whatever it is they're going to do. Tree rats, by comparison, these are the kind of cute rats. These aren't your big Norway rats that you know you imagine most of the time when I say the word rat. These are tree rats. They're very aerobatic. They can climb. You wouldn't believe where they can climb. And they will climb up into trees and strip off leaves or small twigs, especially at this time of year, I'll go out to certain plants on my farm and find little branches on the ground, you know, as if someone carefully snipped off 12, 14, 16 inch long branches of some of my conifers and things on the ground underneath the tree. And I finally realized it was tree rats that were going up and taking them and dropping them by accident, and obviously taking them somewhere for their nest. Tree rats are more likely in this instance because one, they didn't do any damage to the persimmon. So that tells me it's probably not squirrels. Two, you didn't see them present. And the type of damage that I'm seeing here looks more characteristic of tree rat damage. It does, I can't zoom in close enough. If you see shredded leaves that look like they were chewed on and are still hanging there, that could be that red hump caterpillar. And you might've had a localized 
which is the nature of their their outbreaks, a localized outbreak that did a bunch of damage and very high likelihood by the second week of October that either they've fallen on the ground and pupated or they got eaten by birds. And that's a very common outcome for red humped caterpillar. So it's probably one of those things because red humped caterpillars can't feed on the persimmon fruit. And my experience with tree rats is that they don't, at least not until they're ripe. Squirrels, on the other hand, couldn't care less. So that leads me just by deductive reasoning to probably tree rats, possibly you saw a, the remains of an outbreak of red-humped caterpillar. In either case, not a huge problem because tree rats are probably done with what they're going to do in terms of getting any benefit from that tree, and the red-humped caterpillars are probably done. The last generation I've ever seen on red-humped caterpillars here was in October, but it was in a warm year when we were continuing with our, what we used to call Indian summer pattern all the way through October, where it still felt very summer-like. Cooling off as it is now, caterpillars would move very slowly. Bear in mind, insects are not warm-blooded, so when the temperatures get lower, they slow way down, and uh, your problems kind of go away at that point. My guess is you won't have more of a problem, but if you continue to get foliage being stripped, and it seems to be happening at night, keep in mind it's probably tree rats, very, very hard to control, but some people find that putting netting or something over the tree is effective. Uh, they can get under it, but they just don't want to is what it comes down to. No, you're not, you're not fooling them. They just don't like to get tangled anywhere. Basically, the rule I learned from a wildlife biologist is they want to keep moving and they want to be sheltered. They want to keep moving so that they're not standing in one place open to the sky to owls and other raptors grabbing them in the middle of the night. And they want to, when they are doing something, they want to be in the cover of foliage. So when I find problems from tree rats on my farm, for example, I'll find uh, an orange. We've discussed this where they burrow in to the in, into the orange, eat out all the flesh and leave the peel hanging there like a now it suddenly looks like a little birdhouse or something. That's because they felt safe in the foliage of the density of the orange tree that they could stay in one place for 20, 30 minutes and do that. They're not going to hang out on that top of your persimmon tree for very long because they're open to the sky. So I doubt you'll have much more problem with this. But if you do, some kind of barrier can be effective. And netting is kind of awful when they get tangled in it. So that brings us back to that um, uh, seedling blanket or frost blanket, as it's called. Just drape it over the tree for a little while till they go somewhere else. Again, I would only do that if you see the damage continuing. Don, this is October. That it means is. it's pumpkin time. And there's this beautiful article. It turns out that the giant pumpkin contest yeah. happened. And there was someone in Minnesota who grew a pumpkin weighing 2,749 pounds. They're the winner. Yeah. And then in Citrus Heights, yeah. right here in the Sacramento <laughs> Valley, we have a winner. Ron Root and Nick Kennedy of Citrus Heights earned a state record and second in the national contest for their 2,497-pound pumpkin. <laughs> now, there's a... All right, we always get questions about these pumpkins. They're really a uh, hybrid They're squash. huge. They're huge, yes. And someone will say something like, wow, I bet you can get a lot of pies out of those. These aren't pie pumpkins. Good job, guys. 2,497 pounds is amazingly impressive. So if you want to jump on board, the first key to growing a giant pumpkin is getting the right kind of seed. So you got to buy the seed from someone like this guy that just won the contest, and it's going to be expensive. 2,749 pounds is the record y'all have to beat next year. You've been listening to The Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.